morning, everybody. Why don't we go ahead and... Hi, Josh. <laughs> Why don't we go ahead and get started in a word of prayer, and then we can get into our study in Daniel. Dearest Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come to you this morning and give you praise for another opportunity that we have to be together as this local body. Just pray, Lord, that you would be with us this morning as we worship you, Lord, as we uh, give you praise, as we hear your word being taught. Just pray, Lord, that you would be with us into our study this morning. Thank you for the truths that we have here. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've revealed through us to us through the prophet Daniel. And Lord, we just pray that we would be attentive, pray, Lord, that we would have understanding into your word, and, and we just thank you, Lord, for the plans that you have uh, for the future. And Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 9, again this morning. If you'll turn there with me. As we study this wonderful prophecy given to us by Daniel, a man who is highly esteemed by God. In the last four verses of this chapter, we're seeing God's plan for the future of the nation of Israel. God is having his messenger, the angel Gabriel, deliver this message to Daniel in response to Daniel getting down on his knees and praying for the restoration of the people of God to the city of God, Jerusalem. So this is God's response to Daniel's prayer. This is God revealing to Daniel just how he is going to complete his plan for his chosen nation through the rest of human history. And this will lead them through to the coming kingdom of the Messiah. Now, if you remember, we started the chapter, as we started the chapter, the Jews had been in captivity for close to 70 years. And according to what God had revealed to the prophet Jeremiah, It was close to the time that God had designated for the people to return from exile. God had told Jeremiah that the people would be sent away from the land for a period of 70 years, and we read last time in the book of 2 Chronicles in chapter 36 that the 70-year time period was significant, and that was because 70 was the number of Sabbath years that Israel had failed to keep. God had determined all the way back In Leviticus 12, that when Israel had entered the land, the promised land, they should keep a Sabbath year. They would work the land for six years, planting and harvesting their crops and then tending their vineyards. But then on the seventh year, on that Sabbath year, the land was to be given rest. No crops, no harvesting, no tending of the vineyards. Well, they may have started off, they did start off doing it the way they were supposed to, but in the later years... They stopped. And Second Chronicles 36 told us what happened because of this. It said in Second uh, Chronicles 36, verse 20, And those who had escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. So the people of Israel had not kept the Sabbath for the land, had not given it rest, and so the Lord gave the land its rest. 70 years worth, one for each Sabbath that they had failed to keep. And if you calculate that out, you come up with a span of 490 years that they had failed to keep the Sabbaths. 77-year spans of time, or one could say, 
One could say 70 weeks of years. Now, that was the beginning of the captivity, but then we skip forward to Daniel chapter 9, and we're getting close to the end of that time. Daniel is getting, I don't know if excited is really the word, but I'm sure that Daniel is, oh, we're not supposed to be there yet, but anyway, (laughs) that's a little later. Uh, But Daniel's getting forward, or looking forward to this time uh, when those 70 years are complete, and so he's praying to the Lord to fulfill his promise to the nation and restore them to the land. So Gabriel comes in response to Daniel's prayer, and he's giving, he's give, he gives him this prophecy that we've been studying for the last few weeks. And now what have we seen? We've seen the end state in verse 24, where it said, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So the future that Israel has to look forward to ultimately has to do with the ending of sin. No more sin, no more tolerance of sin, no more penalty for sin. It will all be taken care of, and there will be a perfect state Everlasting righteousness, a direct communication with God, the total focus of worship on the Creator in the way that He deems to be fit. That would be a completely opposite situation from what we have today. But this will take some time. How much time? Well, Gabriel says 70 weeks, 70 sevens. Now, this 70 weeks, this is 70 weeks of years or 490 years. Remember, we just talked about 490 years a minute ago. That was the same number of Sabbaths that Israel had violated. Over the course of 490 years, they had gotten themselves into the mess that they were currently in. And now Daniel is told that in another 490 years, God would be bringing them into a state where all of their sins would be a thing of the past. The nation would be saved, and the kingdom would be ushered in on earth. Daniel had been praying for a promised restoration, and the Lord would deliver on that promise, but there was much more in store for Israel in their future than just currently sending them back to the land. And Daniel was now becoming aware of that as well. We saw the beginnings of the details in verse 25, which we looked at last time, it said, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. In this verse, Gabriel was going over the details of this time frame. <clears throat> yes, there will be, it will be a 490-year process, and he's told him what will be accomplished at the end of that time, what the end results will be. But now there are things that will occur or things that you could point to within that time frame, during that time frame. There are going to be at least three distinct periods, not at least, there will be three distinct periods within these 70 weeks. There's a seven-week period, then there's a 62-week period, and then there's a one-week period, and they are broken out for us In these final verses. So the first major portion of this has to do with the seven and 62 weeks, which are kind of dealt with 
simultaneously, or the first 69 weeks, 483 years, which is what we looked at in our last study. And that's when the clock starts ticking. But you remember, we talked about the map in the forest um, last time. If I'm lost in the forest, it's one thing if you give me a map, but it doesn't really do me any good if I don't know where I am when I'm given the map. Here we have to consider when the clock was supposed to start. What was the starting point for this timeline? We can't know when it will end or how long to figure out the timing of these events if we don't know what the starting point is. So the clock didn't start ticking right away. So Gabriel's not telling Daniel that this will be accomplished 490 years from today. When I say go, it'll be 490 years. That's not what Gabriel says. Now he tells him when it will start and when it will end. What does he say? It says, from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. So there are bookends for these first 69 weeks. The seven weeks and the 62 weeks for the 483 prophetical years. And we won't do nearly as much math this time as what we did last time. So you can rest easy if you were sweating that a little bit last week. But there will be decree, a decree issued to restore and rebuild Jerusalem that starts the clock. And we looked at this in detail. And we saw that the decree in view is the decree of Artaxerxes in Nehemiah chapter 2 where he allows Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem to begin the process of rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. And 49 years later, the city is completed, and that was the end of that first seven-week period. And then right after the seventh week, the 62 weeks begin, and they end when Messiah the Prince comes, which is when the clock will stop. And we looked at, again, a lot of math last time, and, that, and the math that showed that when you calculate out the 483 prophetical years, you get 173,880 days. And 173,880 days from when Artaxerxes made the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, you end up with the time of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem when Messiah the Prince enters the city. And we looked at all that again in detail last time. So at the end of verse 25, we come to the end of the 69th of the 70 weeks. And now you'd think that we'd be ready to look at that final week, right? That 70th week. Well, not quite so fast. As my, as my slide is telling you, we're not getting to the last verse of chapter 9 today. We're only getting to verse 26 today. Um, and so we'll look at verse 26. Look, how verse, look at how verse 26 starts off. It says, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the first thing to notice here is the word after the 62 weeks. This is what will happen after the 62 weeks. Most people say, okay, well, that makes sense. I get it. So this happens in that last week, right? After week 69, you have week 69, then you have week 70, right? But you notice... That's not really what it says. It doesn't say during the 70th week. It says after the 62 weeks. People might think, well, isn't that the same thing? Well, not really. It's not the same thing. The 70th week doesn't come until we get to verse 27, where it says, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. The one week is the 70th week. So that 70th week will come a little later. But what do we have here? Right now we have 
a gap. Oh, and now we need our slide. And now our slide guy's not there. <laughs> Sorry, Adam. <laughs> so now we have a gap. We have a break in the plan or a long pause, if you will. So this is a slide that I stole. I did not create. I don't create anything. I just steal things and put them, get them online. So, um, but anyway, this is this does a good job, I think, of presenting everything that we have here. So, um, you note that in the slide we have the seven weeks, and then we have the sixty-two weeks. This is not to scale, by the way. If you if you measure these out, you can't see. You know, seven weeks, sixty-two. That doesn't all measure out equally. So, if you're kind of OCD about those things, don't worry about that. Just put that past yourself. But this takes us right up to before the crucifixion, right up before Palm Sunday. You see the little cross there. Then what do we have? Well, after that, we have the crucifixion, and then we have the red lines, which show Christ coming, Christ ascending. So Christ is crucified, and then he ascends. And then after that, we have a gap there. You have this time here after the 69th week, but before we come to the 70th week, at the end there, in which these events that we see in verse 26 are going to occur, as well as the entire church age, which is something that we don't see in this passage at all, and we'll talk about that a little bit as we go through today. So what is the first thing that will happen between the 69th and the 70th weeks? It says here, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. The phrase that's used here, will be cut off, is one word in the Hebrew, and it's a word that means to cut or to destroy. It's a, as in cutting flesh in two. Think of a butcher cutting off pieces of an animal. It's something that is, that is hacked off, and there's our picture. This is a total separation of something. Interestingly enough, it is a word that came to be used for establishing a covenant. Back in Genesis 15, Verse 18, it said, on, the day, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land. The word for made in that verse is the word for cut off. The Lord cut off a covenant with Abraham. The reason for that is that covenants involved the cutting in half of animals with the pieces laid out opposite one another. And that's clearly seen earlier in that chapter in Genesis um, where, there's a, where the animals are cut in half and set off to the side. There is a total separation of the two parts. The word can also mean to be killed or executed, as in the execution of a criminal. There are several times when Israel is told that those that break certain laws should be cut off from the people, and this is the word that's used in that instance. So what does this mean here? Which one does it mean? Is it, is it to cut in half? Is it to, to kill what does it mean? Well, both are certainly true. On the one hand, the Messiah was cut off from the nation because the nation rejected him. There, were, there was separation between Israel and her Messiah. On the other hand, he was most certainly killed as well and, ex- and executed along with other common criminals. So both are true, but which one is it here, or can it be both? Well, along with the phrase, and have nothing, I think both elements are indeed involved in what we're talking about here. Gabriel is telling Daniel that after the presentation of Messiah the Prince, instead of taking 
what is rightfully his as Messiah, sitting on the throne of David over the nation of Israel, he will instead suffer the death of a criminal. At that time, he does not become the king over the nation of Israel. Now turn with me over to the Gospel of John for a minute, the first chapter of John. And you probably know the beginning chapter of the Gospel of John talks about Jesus being God, the Word being God, the Word being with God, and coming down to earth to dwell among us. The incarnation of Christ is talked about. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But look with me at verse 10 of John chapter 1, where it says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Jesus, the one who made the world, he created the world, he came into the world, he lived in the world, but the world didn't know him, didn't recognize him. But not only that, look at verse 11 there, he says, he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Who did he come to when he came into the world? He came to the house of Israel. Right? He was born as an Israelite. His ministry was among his chosen people, and they did what? They rejected him. They did not receive him. Now, turn over to the second chapter of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is addressing the Jews who are witnessing the events brought about by the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And in his address... He says this in verse 22, Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, you put to death, he says. You delivered him up to be nailed to a cross, to suffer a criminal's death. But again, he rose again. God raised him up. Now, in the next few verses, Peter talks about how David prophesied of the Messiah. The Christ being resurrected from the dead in just the same manner. David wasn't talking about himself, but because Peter was pretty sure that David's body was still in the grave. So he was talking about Christ. And and that's what he says when he comes down to verse 31, still in Acts 2. And he says, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. It was the Christ who would be raised. It was the Christ who would suffer and die and then rise again by the power of God. Just like what had happened to this man, Jesus, that he's telling these Jews about. And so, what is his conclusion to this? Look at verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, he says. This Jesus whom the nation had crucified was their own Messiah. Messiah the Prince, the one who had been delivered to them just as Gabriel had told them. 
And then at their own hands, he was cut off and had nothing. They had put their own Messiah to death. And this started a period where God turned away from the nation of Israel and turned his attention towards other nations. It's this period of time that we know of as the gap there, the church age gap. A lot of people don't like the term gap. It's just a simple term. It just means it's a period of time between the weeks, the 69th and the 70th week. I want to take a look at a few verses that talk about this here. One of the ways in which God had told Israel that they would be judged would be by other nations. And we've seen that time and time again. You look through judges and it's other nations that come in and, and discipline the land and things happen to the land. Nations with languages and tongues that they would not understand come in and discipline the land. He, he told them that through Moses back in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And you don't have to turn there, but he says in Deuteronomy 28, 49, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand. And that's really just the beginning. From that point on, when Israel got themselves into real trouble, the Lord would often use other nations to punish the nation of Israel. And we've seen that throughout the study because that's what we're seeing in the book of Daniel, right? Who took the nation captive? Babylon, right? Another nation, a nation with another language, just as God told Israel that he would do and how he would punish them. Turn with me over to the book of Hosea, just a book over from Daniel, so probably just a few pages from where you're at in Daniel 9. Hosea is an interesting character because his life is going to be the parallel for this, his prophecy. You kind of have to feel a little bad for Hosea if you know anything about what's going on in Hosea because God has him use his own family as an object lesson for Israel and for Judah. So look at Hosea chapter 1, down at verse 2. It says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant, flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim. And here's step number one. Hosea, go get yourself a wife. Unfortunately, she won't be a faithful wife. Right? Talk about bad marriages right off the bat, but she's not going to be a faithful wife. Just be glad that you're not Hosea. But that's not all. When Hosea and Gomer start to have kids, and the kids' names all have significance. It continues on. It says, And she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel. For yet a little while... And I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Verse 5, And it will come about on that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel and that I should ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. 
When she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. So the happy couple has three kids. (laughs) The first son is named Jezreel, which is a name for a place where Israel will be judged. Right? You think about naming your kids, right? And it's like, oh, what does that name mean? Well, exactly, yeah. Well, they have this little daughter. I feel, I feel the worst for the daughter, right? They have this little daughter. Her name is Lo-Ruhamah. Cute little girl. Little Lo-Ruhamah. Yeah, her name means no mercy. That's a, that's a fun name, right? Signifying that God will no longer have mercy or compassion on the nation. Then another little boy, Lo-Ami, which means not my people, signifying God's rejection of the nation. And you see, through these names and this lesson, God is telling the nation that there will be a time when they are cut off, when they are under judgment. He will not show compassion or mercy on them, and they will not be his people. Now, I say that, but let's keep in mind that at the end of the prophecy, they're restored. So that's very important to keep in mind. They will be restored at a point in time, and that's when we'll talk about in the 70th week or at the end of the 70th week. But what will happen? when This time when they're not his people, what will happen? Well, again, we don't see it in Hosea. But we know from the New Testament that he will turn his attention to another people. Look now with me over to the book of Romans in the ninth chapter of Romans. In Romans chapter 9, we first, first of all see Paul reference the fact that salvation has come to the Gentiles. It's not the first place that we see that salvation comes to the Gentiles, but, but this is where Paul starts to talk about it. Romans 9, look down at verse 30. He says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Just as we saw back in Acts chapter 2 with Peter's message, Israel rejected their Messiah. The cross of Christ became a stumbling stone to them. They stumbled over that stone. And now salvation has come to the Gentiles. They attained righteousness by faith. Now skip over into chapter 10. And Paul makes mention of the judgment of God told by Moses at the hands of other nations as well. Down in verse 19 of Romans 10. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? At the first, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who sought me not. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So, We also have the foretelling of the signs of judgment coming at the hands of other nations. A nation with another language, a judgment that will make Israel 
jealous, it says. Now skip over to chapter 11. And we could obviously spend a lot more time in these chapters than just what we're doing this morning, but we're trying to pull out some key pieces here. But look over in chapter 11, and we've read part of this before a few weeks ago. But look with me again at verse 25. He says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now we saw this part again a few weeks ago. This has to do with the age that we're in now, the gap in time between the 69th and the 70th weeks of Daniel. The gap in time where God is not focused on Israel because they are still under judgment. But he's now focused on the Gentile nations until the fullness of that time comes in. This is a mystery. It's something that was never revealed in the Old Testament. Israel didn't know about it. Daniel didn't know about it. When Gabriel is revealing this to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, he couldn't see the gap in time between the 69th and 70th weeks because Gabriel doesn't talk to him about it. But here, Paul gives us something of an explanation of it. And remember, what was Paul? Paul was the apostle of the Gentiles, right? The Gentiles, we saw, see that in verse 13 of, of Romans 11. The Gentiles were his primary mission field. So now, since the mystery of salvation coming to the Gentiles has been revealed, now we know about it. And we are aware of this time period. So then, after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, what happens? Look at verse 26 in Romans 11. And thus all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Here is the national salvation, and we talked about this when we went through the six decrees back in uh, verse 24 of Daniel 9. The time when the sin will be gone, the righteousness will be the, the norm, when Israel as a nation is saved. Now we're not quite done. Look at verse 28. And Paul is talking about their current state, which is true of them during this church age gap. He says in verse 28, From the standpoint of the gospel, they, that's the Jews, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you, Gentiles, once were disobedient to God, but now you have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. So these also now have been disobedient in order that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. And you see here, this is how the whole plan works together, a plan for Jew and Gentile alike. We, as Gentiles, were disobedient. But because of Israel's disobedience, God took that gift of salvation and offered it to us Gentiles instead. Now, as it's offered to us to make Israel jealous, you think about that and it's like you could really have a, you could really have a self-esteem issue with that, right? It's like, oh, we were offered salvation so that just to make Israel jealous. Well, you know what? Whatever reason we were offered salvation, that's a good thing. 
but now it's offered to us to make Israel jealous. The end result of that is to come full circle and bring salvation once again to Israel when God will complete the plan. After the fullness of the Gentiles, the church will be taken up in the clouds at the rapture, and God will complete his plan for the 70 weeks after that time. And in that way, he will bring about the restoration of his chosen nation. Mercy will be shown to all, Jew and Gentile alike, right? The church age will be completed with the with the church age saints either resurrected or raptured. That's what the little that's what the little hook there, the little fish hook there indicates that's the time of the rapture. Jesus comes in the clouds and takes the church back with him. So the church will be completed with the church age saints resurrected or raptured and then the nation of Israel will be saved at the end of the 70th week of Daniel. So all that to say, the whole reason I went over that There is a gap in time. Daniel didn't write about this gap because Daniel didn't know about this gap. He wasn't told about this gap. But these events that we are seeing here in verse 26 after the end of the 69th week are things that take place within that gap in time. And that only makes sense. There are a few things... There are a few other things that Israel says that take place here that only make sense if the plan of the 70 weeks is suspended or put on hold for a time. And we take a look at those now in verse 26, if you're back in Daniel 9, where he says, And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. So here is described an event, the destruction of the city and the sanctuary. Now, if you think about it, that's a little odd here. Yeah? Quick, quick question backing up. Okay. Finish the section on uh-huh. looking forward to the yeah. Can you comment on the way when you study this, the New Testament interacts with the Old and how we should handle that? How we should handle how they... How they interact together. Um... Sorry, I didn't hear that the part. The role of the Old Testament and the role of the New Testament, how they interact together, how we should handle that when we're looking at our... At if we're looking at them a little bit different. Yeah. Um, well, I'd say that you can... I mean, definitely there's a progression, right? The Old Testament talks about certain things and reveals certain things. Then we get to the New Testament and more things are revealed, right? More things that we didn't have in the Old Testament. Paul talks about the mystery, right? He talks about it in... Um, it's in Ephesians, uh, specifically, he talks about it, he refers to it here, where there's things that when God has revealed to him different aspects of, of what happened with Israel that Israel didn't know about. I think even Peter refers to it a little bit as well. Um, things that the prophets and the angels didn't, didn't even know about. Um, so uh, there's, there's a lot of... So when you look at the Old Testament, there's things that you read in the Old Testament that, that everything is true. And this, from the perspective of what we're seeing in Daniel 9, this is, all, this is what's going to happen to Israel, right? But with this gap in time for Israel, they didn't know that this period would be suspended. They didn't know that the Messiah, I mean, they should have known that Messiah would be cut off. If Messiah hadn't have been cut off, you could make the case, now obviously, 
sovereign plan of God, you know, you have to work all that in. But you can make the case that if Israel hadn't rejected their Messiah, then we could have gone straight into the kingdom at that point in time. But that obviously wasn't what happened. And, and, and Gabriel even mentions that here, right? Messiah is cut off instead of him being accepted. So, um, but yeah, but I would, I, I think if, if, I don't know if I'm answering your question or not, or if there's, okay. So, what's that? Thank you. Uh-huh, sure. I mean, if there's more that you, Okay. All right, so now, the, uh, the rest in verse 26 here. People of the prince who is to come will destroy the city uh, and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. So here's described an event, the destruction of the city and the sanctuary. Now, what did we just read in verse 25? We didn't just read it, but when we read into verse 25, there is coming an issue of a decree to restore and rebuild the city, right? Now, wait a minute. So right now, from Daniel's perspective, the city, in, okay, think about the time frame. From Daniel's perspective, where, when he's sitting, when he's getting this from Gabriel, the city and the sanctuary are in what condition? They're destroyed, right? I mean, they're, they're, they've been burned down. They're destroyed. They're in shambles. The temple has been torn down. The walls of the city are rubble. The city has been burned. Now, Daniel has just found out, just a verse earlier, has just found out that there will be a decree to restore and rebuild the city. Plaza and moat, inside and out, and that will be accomplished within that 49-year time period. And then what? Well, what's Gabriel saying now? Now Gabriel's saying it's going to be destroyed. The judgments just keep coming, don't they? There's just no peace for Jerusalem. There isn't, and there won't be until all of this is over, until this plan is completed. So Jerusalem and the temple or sanctuary will be destroyed. By whom? Who's going to destroy it? Well, it says right here, the people of the prince who is to come. Now, who are these people? Who are the people of the prince who is to come? Well, to figure that out, we need to know who this prince is. And then we'll know who his people are. Well, we've just seen a prince, right? In verse 25, talked about Messiah the prince. And we know that to be Christ. So maybe this is the Jewish people, right? That would be the people of Israel. No, it's not. It's not the Jewish people. What happens shortly after the coming of the Messiah? He's cut off. We just saw that. He is rejected and he's put to death by his own people. He is separated out from the discussion, at least from the discussion here, the immediate discussion. So this isn't talking about Messiah the Prince, This is talking about another prince. This is talking about a prince who is to come. Someone who has not been on the scene yet. And actually, he isn't even on the scene in our day and age. He's still to come when these things happen. So who is this? Well, who have we seen before who's coming in the future? This isn't the first time that we've seen someone coming. Back a page or two over to chapter 8 and verse 23. This is the previous word that Gabriel had delivered to Daniel from the Lord. Verse 23 says, And in the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue, and his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. 
and through his shrewdness he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. And the vision of the evenings and mornings, which has been told is true, but keep the vision secret for it pertains to many days in the future. Remember when we looked at this back in chapter 8, there was a projection going on here. On the one hand, Daniel has seen a vision that shows a specific future event, a specific event of a man who will come out of Greece and do vile and horrific things to the Jews. That was Antiochus Epiphanes. We talked about him in detail. But the interpretation of that vision goes beyond just that event and looks ahead even further into the future, many days in the future. Even further in the future, there will be a king, a ruler, who will oppose the prince of princes. He will destroy many while they are at ease, it says. This man is the one that we know as the Antichrist, the beast of the book of Revelation. He will be a king, a ruler, a mighty man. Turn back one more chapter. When we first saw him in chapter 7, here we saw him as the little horn. And you remember, here Daniel saw four animals, four beasts, One like a lion, one like a bear, one like a leopard, and then a fourth one that didn't look like anything recognizable, but it had ten horns on its head. And we won't develop it all again, but these four beasts represented the four kingdoms with absolute authority on the earth, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And what else came from that fourth beast? Look at verse 8 of Daniel 7. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn. A little one came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. So here's the little horn, the horn that comes up from out of the other ten horns and subdues three of the others. And he had great intelligence, and he uttered great boasts. And what did this represent? Glad you asked. Look down at verse 24, where we're told there... As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. This little horn represents a king, a king who will subdue three others. But this king will come out of this fourth beast, which is Rome, the Roman Empire. And we saw back then this will be a revival of the Roman Empire, characterized in some way. We can't say with absolute certainty how, but somehow characterized by a tenfold division with ten leaders or ten rulers at the helm. And then out of these ten rulers, this one seemingly insignificant one will emerge, remove three from power, and take over the rest. This is the ruler or king that we're talking about. But in chapter 9, he's not called a king. Or he's not called a horn. He's not called the Antichrist. He's called a prince. Why? Why is he called a prince there? Well, I believe it has to do with the contrast between himself and the Messiah. This word for prince is the same word used for prince when referring to Christ in verse 25. But back then, the word for Messiah is also used. And that's the word that means the anointed one. So there we had the anointed prince. The anointed prince will be cut off. Now we have another prince, a contrasting prince, that is still to come, and this will be the Antichrist. He will be the very antithesis for 
the Messiah. He will be a prince, but not the true prince, not the anointed prince. Look at the next verse, and if you're still in Daniel 7, I'll just read it if you're not. Verse 25 says, And he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. He speaks out against God. He wears down the saints. He will attempt to alter what God has determined to be right. In effect, he will set himself up as God, and he is in complete opposition to God. So back in Daniel chapter 9, this prince is not the Messiah, but he is the anti-Messiah, the prince that is yet to come after the true Messiah has been cut off. That's the prince that we're talking about here. So that's who this prince is. But now the question, of course, is who are his people? Well, what did we see then he, from whom he comes in chapter 7? It's the Roman Empire. So who would his people be? These would be the Romans. It's very clear that this little horn comes out of Rome, the fourth beast or nation, and that has to be true here as well. How do we know? We can't, why can't this be Antiochus Epiphanes that we saw in chapter 8? Because at this time, after Messiah is cut off, Rome is the only nation of the four that is left. And Antiochus came out of what nation? He came out of Greece. So we know for sure that this is not Antiochus. And the Greeks, in view here, this is the Roman Empire. Who was in power when Jesus was crucified? It was Rome, right? They are the last ultimate empire that the world will know. So we have the same people. There is a gap in time. We're talking about the people that live in the first phase of the Roman Empire. The Antichrist will come in the second phase when we have a ten-nation confederacy of some sort. But they are of the same people. That's who's seen here. Now Gabriel also mentions the destruction of the city and the sanctuary. These would be the events of 70 AD. You know what happened in 70 AD. Romans destroyed the city of Jerusalem and everything in it, including the sanctuary and the temple. Jesus himself made reference to this event, this time in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we have time. Turn over to Matthew 24. I know we're going to be in Matthew 24 in a few weeks, but hopefully I'm not stealing Josh's thunder. Actually, we start at the very end of chapter 23, when Jesus has just finished rebuking the Pharisees for their sins and their inability to lead the nation with any resemblance of a godly character. And that leads him to cry out down in verse 37 of Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What's he talking about here? He's talking about being cut off. He's talking about a time when he will go away and then not return until the nation is ready to receive him. And that won't be just until just prior to his second coming when we get into the 70th week. Until that time, their house is left to them desolate. They will experience a great many difficulties, trials, and persecutions until then during the period of Gentile 
dominance. That's when this will take place. And this fits with what we've been seeing in Daniel. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 24 where he says, says, And Jesus came out of the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, and he answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. So the disciples point out the temple. But what's Jesus' response? The temple and all its magnificence, it wasn't going to last. It's going to be completely torn down, stone from stone. In fact, it's, it was only going to last for about another 37 years at this point. The temple would come to an end. The Jews hated the Roman presence in Jerusalem. They hated the Romans. From 66 to 70 AD, they had what they was called the Jewish War, where they had an uprising against the Romans. One of the reasons, one of the reasons that the Jews hated Christ, I mean, mostly because they were unregenerate and he was God, but one of the other reasons that they say that they, would, that they hated Christ was because he didn't free them from the Romans. They had it in their minds that when the Messiah came, that's what he was going to do. And since he didn't do that, they despised him. They didn't see how he could be the Messiah because he didn't fit in their mentality or their mental image of what the Messiah would do. But this attitude was prevalent for a long time, and in 66 AD, the zealots started to rise up. They would assassinate Romans in the street. They would sneak up on them with daggers. They refused to offer sacrifices to the emperor, in effect, declaring war on Rome. And this upstart little country started to become a thorn in Rome's side, and so the emperor sent in troops. In fact, he sent in a flood of troops. And what does it say in verse 26 of Daniel 9? And its end will come with a flood. This is not a flood of water, but it will be overrun like a flood. And that's exactly what happened. Jews were made slaves. They were completely subdued by the Romans. And in 70 AD, Rome besieged the city of Jerusalem. They built up mounds around it so that none could escape. And they would attack the city with weapons. They would throw stones and other large objects over the walls. They killed many but many of the Jews also starved to death. And the historian Josephus describes a lot of this. That's how we know a lot about what happened at that point in time. But in the end, the city is torched. The temple, as grand as it was, was surrounded by scaffolding and fires were set around, the, around its walls, fires on all sides. They generated heat around the walls. The walls started to crack and break apart and no stone was left upon another. And this is just as Jesus said it would happen. And that was really the beginning was really the beginning of the events that Israel would have to go through during this gap in history for them. Uh, keep a finger in Matthew 24. We'll come back here in just a minute. What does Daniel say at the end of verse 26? He says, even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. I think we have here is, is another filling in of the gap, an indication of what will happen starting from the destruction of Jerusalem until the final week of Daniel. This is indicating the troublesome times that Israel will endure right up until the end. It isn't going to get better for them. In fact, it's going to be marked by nothing but hardship and turmoil. If you're still in Matthew 24, we'll read again verse 3, and it says, And he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming, and at the end, uh, end of the end of the age. 
And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, and that is not yet the end. The disciples heard him saying that he would be leaving, and they heard him say that the temple would be destroyed. They want to know what will be the sign of his return when he comes back. How will they know when he's coming back? They didn't know if it would be in a year or 10 years or 2,000 years. But they wanted to know what to look for. And he tells them something very telling. He starts off by telling them what won't be the sign. There will be many who mislead and claim to be the Christ. There will be wars and rumors of wars. In other words, there will be false messiahs. And there will be persecution. And there will be troublesome and perilous times before the end. Yet that will not be the end. And then in verses 7 through 14, he talks about how bad it will be right before the end and this, at the signs of the end. And we won't read it. We'll save, that for, we'll save that for Josh. We'll save something for Josh. But he presents the description of what will be going on prior to the end, just prior to the end. There are birth pangs, the pangs that come when birth is truly close at hand. So what he's telling them is that these things will happen and they will get worse and worse and worse right up until the time of the end. And the time of the end is what's coming next in Daniel chapter 9 in verse 27, which we'll save for next week. But if you look down through Israel's history over the last 2,000 years, you see all this to be true. They still have not fully come back into the land. They have been murdered in many different ways In many different times over the centuries, during the Crusades, there were many Jews killed. They were murdered at the hands of people like the Russians, the French, the Germans. Many different examples point to the war and the desolations or destructions that they have endured and will continue to endure until the end. And what will be the end? The end will be that 70th and final week, that final seven-year period when God's plan will all come back to focus on the nation of Israel. The fullness of the Gentiles will be over. The church will be taken out of the way and Israel will be front and center once again, back in God's focus. As God finishes his 70-week plan to bring about their full and final restoration. And we'll talk, we'll take a look at that. I think I said that last week too, but I was wrong. I apologize. Next week, we'll take a look at that that final week. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come to you once again. We, Lord, we give you praise for um, your plans. We, thank you, we give you praise, Lord, for the things that you revealed to Daniel. We, th- we give you praise for the things that you've revealed to us uh, through the apostles, through the New Testament, Lord. And, and Lord, we just thank you so much for uh, just the way that you've worked all this out. Lord, we, we thank you for uh, the gospel coming to the different nations, Lord. We thank you for the way that... that uh, the gospel is meant to be shared with everyone, and we just praise you and thank you for that. And we pray, Lord, that, that that would be first and foremost on our minds to be sharing the gospel with those around us. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of salvation. We thank you for um, or just you, you loving us enough to come and, and, and die on the cross for our sins. We praise you for that, and we just pray, Lord, that, that you would help us to uh, just be sharing that with others, making that a, a commitment on our part. We thank you, Lord, for Israel. We thank you for the plans that you have with them. And we just, uh, Lord, thank you for uh, 
showing us and allowing us to see how all these things fit and work together. Lord, I just pray that you'd be with us as we go through the next hour uh, this morning and give you praise that we would worship you, Lord. Pray for Josh as he brings us the word. And Lord, I just pray that we'd be able to use these things that we learn here today. And, and as we encourage one another, Lord, just to, be, to leave here uh, encouraged and ready to glorify and honor you. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.